today on CityCast Denver. Two years ago, Denver became the first city in the country to decriminalize psilocybin, or magic mushrooms. And so far, it's going pretty well. Um, We can see from the arrests and the safety data and the use data that the sky, in fact, has not fallen with uh, psilocybin decriminalization. Kevin Matthews led the decriminalization campaign back in 2019, and he's on the show today to dive into the data and talk about what comes next. Today is Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Kevin Matthews, welcome to CityCast Denver. Bree, thank you so much for having me. So you led the campaign to decriminalize psilocybin two years ago, and you've been working with this city committee to keep tabs on how it's been going. That all sounds like a lot of work to me. Why is this important to you? My, my, my story goes back at least a decade with psilocybin. Um, and the reason why they made such a tremendous impact in my life is because I was able to form a new perspective around my depression diagnosis from a, from a single use of psilocybin. Now, granted, you know, this was over a decade ago, right? So it was certainly a recreational experience. I will fully admit that it was here in Denver and I I went to the park with some friends. We had eaten some mushrooms. Um, I took about four grams of a strain called uh, called penis envy. By the way, I hope it's okay to say that. Um, it's a very it's a very powerful strain. Um, and 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 long story short, I mean, I was watching the clouds float by, and I I went and laid down in the grass and looked up at the sky. And you know, I don't know if the clouds actually parted, but it certainly felt like they did. And the intuition that I received, this little voice in my head said, Kevin, um, you no longer have to be a victim to your diagnosis of major depression. Um, In fact, you have so much more control over it than you think. You just simply have to believe that you can heal. And it completely shattered my perception and worldview of being a person that's suffering from depression. And from that moment on, it really catalyzed you know, installing some new programming, some new routines, some new ritual in my life to start feeling better. And it worked. So fast forward to today, how is decriminalization going? Well, that's the big question, right? We just submitted our 2021 comprehensive report to the Finance and Governance Committee of the Denver City Council. All right. Our next item is a report by Kevin Matthews on the psilocybin decriminalization. Apparently, I can't say either of those words. So that report was was created uh, by myself and, and a few others who are members of the Denver Psilocybin Mushroom Policy Review Panel. And the report really explains why, as a panel, we unanimously agreed that decriminalizing psilocybin mushrooms in in Denver has not since presented any significant public health or safety issue. Uh, For example, arrests for psilocybin are down by approximately 50% when compared to previous years. And a majority of those arrests, 89%, um, involve um, other illicit substances. And then according to our observational data, both from an organization that we've worked with called Unlimited Sciences, 
um, and also uh, the Global Drug Survey indicates that um, psilocybin is used intentionally um, in an informed manner by, by most people uh, for reasons of health and mental wellness. And from the data, um, you know, we determined that psilocybin has, again, not presented any significant public health or safety issue. And, uh, you know, we feel based on the information that not only the, the city government here, um, elected officials and policymakers, but also Denver residents uh, can feel more comfortable with expanding civil liberties in the city. And so with that, our recommendations are, are a first step in terms of of what can we do. So the first recommendation that we have for the city council is that we recommend that the city, that we train city and county of Denver first responders, including all active first responders within the Denver Police Department, Denver Sheriff Department, paramedics, Denver Mental Health, Denver Fire Department, and STAR program to maximize public and officer safety while minimizing liability through specific instruction regarding appropriate recognition and response to persons undergoing psychedelic crisis. And, and the thing with that is, is that Denver, you know, Denver is a national leader. Um, Denver has already been reimagining their drug enforcement policies uh, with programs like the Mental Health Co-Responders Unit that's here and the STAR program where they send out mental health responders to emergency calls, right? And so this, you know, this training is really something that we, you know, as a panel, we had to ask ourselves from the perspective of like safety and responsible use, you know, what is one powerful step that we can take to keep Denver residents safe? And so we felt like, you know, providing this training to, to law enforcement would be a, a huge step in the right direction. And so over the coming months, uh, we'll be working with the city uh, to finalize the multi-responder training and potentially consider a new resolution that incorporates this panel's recommendations. Kevin, why is this important right now? Why is decriminalization um, and these measures to maybe implement things like harm reduction um, around psilocybin use important in this moment? Well, you know, it, it's a mental health conversation in, in many ways. I mean, Colorado is, uh, according to, I think, 2000, actually 2021 data, Colorado is the 47th worst ranked state, if you can believe it, in terms of adults with mental health issues and access to mental health services. Um, of course, those numbers have been greatly exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so it seems clear, well, at least to me and advocates for, for, for psychedelics in general, that we need new and effective alternatives to address this crisis. And at the same time, we believe that an, an individual should be able to uh, really determine their own relationship with these substances, especially if they're naturally occurring. That makes me think about the sort of equity component of this conversation. You know, because when we think about the origins of a lot of these plant-based not remedies, but ways that um, communities have utilized psychedelics and the like for for centuries. Um, that's a lot of communities of color uh, where their traditions and cultures, it's the work that they do with psychedelics is rooted in that. 
Do you think about that when we're talking about regulating it in this sense? Oh my God. I, I'm so happy you asked that question, Bree, because it, it really is critical to this entire conversation. We certainly need to learn our lessons from cannabis regulation, right? And the inequities that that produced. And, and at the same time, this entire movement that's happening with psychedelics right now owes a huge debt of gratitude to a woman named Maria Sabina. Um, Maria Sabina was the first Mexican curandera or healer um, from Oaxaca, Mexico, who allowed Westerners into her purification ceremonies known as veladas, right? And so she not only inspired an entire generation of people to find healing and explore their consciousness um, and really reconnect with nature and the divine, but she also inspired university-level research, uh, which was demonstrating um, the potential of psilocybin as a therapeutic tool. And so if we're going to consider policy reform, it must be just and equitable and inclusive of our traditional you know, lineage holders, medicine keepers, uh, we, we like to call some of these folks legacy practitioners, and they certainly need to be involved in the conversation in terms of what future policy reform looks like. Because, you know, we can't have a bunch of lawyers and policy heads in a, in a room deciding what's best for people here. Like, we really need to listen to and make sure that we're paying respect to traditional and indigenous use. And so we're, you know, myself and other advocates I work with are, you know, firmly rooted in policy reform that's, that's, that's community-based. So how do we make that happen is a, is a big question. And there's certainly a lot of conversation around that. Right? Yeah, that, that's such a, that would be my biggest concern, I think, when I think about marijuana legalization and the folks that got pushed out of uh, making money on it, folks that maybe were operating in an alternative economy prior to legalization, and that was their livelihood, um, or maybe they were growing it themselves. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, how do we make sure that the Marias of the world, the Culanderas, don't get pushed out of this, and it becomes a thing that white people with money control, you know? Right. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's incredibly important. So there's a new term that I learned recently, uh, curb cut policy. How do we do that? And what that means, you know, curb cut policy for, you know, for the listeners who may not know what that means is like, if you consider sidewalks, sidewalks are sloped at intersections and they create access for wheelchairs and strollers and people on bikes, et cetera, right? So they can get on the sidewalk. And so if we're talking about um, future policy reform that includes regulation, um, it needs to be created from, you know, in the beginning, not on the back end, not during implementation, but in, you know, in the beginning, considering how is this accessible to the most marginalized among us? And how do we create something that, that um, you know, makes it accessible? And the challenge we have, you know, what I like to say is that decriminalization is liberty. It's not access. It's different. And so if we're creating models of access, how do we ensure that, um, you know, folks in our communities who've been traditionally marginalized and traditionally cut out of, of you know, using the cannabis industry as an example, how can we make sure that uh, they have just as much access um, as, you know, other folks may have? 
Yeah, and that they're the decision makers too. I think that that metaphor is really apt because I think about the origin of the curb cut, which is came about in part because folks with disabilities protested in the streets here in Denver, actually. And one of their, um, it was about access to buses. But one of those things they did too was they broke curbs with sledgehammers to get attention for the fact that those without curb cuts, you know, streets are deadly. But that came from the work of the community directly impacted. So, or directly working, you know, like working on this issue. So I could see where it also just means it, it doesn't need it, it needs to be more than just a seat at the table these folks with traditions and things rooted in psychedelics need to say we're also making those decisions 100 percent kevin matthews thank you so much for joining me today it's been my absolute pleasure Bree. thank you so much And here's what else is happening in Denver today. The Douglas County mask battle rages on and continues to be confusing as hell. According to the Colorado Sun, the newly formed Douglas County Board of Health created a public health order last month that allowed parents to opt their kids out of mask mandates in schools. Well, students and the Douglas County School District sued the health board over the exemptions, saying it violated students' civil rights by creating an unsafe environment for those who might be at higher risk of contracting COVID-19. The health board's mask exemption order has now been revised, meaning the school district can go back to enforcing its own mask mandates. What a way to spend your first few months as a brand new health department. And finally, here's one quick note about our conversation last Friday about Denver's bid to host the World Cup. We heard from a listener who is working on the bid that the estimated $35 to $55 million cost of the event would all be private money, not public money as we thought. Thanks for letting us know, Jeremy. And thanks for listening. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. And we want to hear from you. Did you quit your job in the last 18 months? Are you a local business that's having trouble hiring people? Call and leave us a voicemail with your story and contact information if you'd like at 720-500-5418. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. with this city committee. Okay. (laughs) This is like, sounds like an accidental rhyme.